O most gracious God, you have created us in your image. You gave us life and love. You call us to acknowledge your presence in each and every one of us. You call us to be open to your spirits. Let us pray. Holy God, as we come to you today, humbled by your plan for your great creation, we understand that your spirit is vast beyond our limited understanding. Your spirit moves in mysterious ways to form and then transform us. Your Holy Spirit allows us to be who we are and become who you want us to be. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you really the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and before all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they couldn't find the body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up at once and returned to Jerusalem, 
And there they found the eleven and those with them all assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then these two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Here ends the reading. Will you pray with me? Come, heavenly comforter and spirit of truth, blowing everywhere, filling all things. Treasury of blessings, giver of life, come and be with us now. For if you are with us, Lord, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then certainly nothing else matters. Amen. Today's homily begins with a question. This question might not make sense to you. It may even potentially offend you. The good news is that by the end of this homily, it is my hope that it makes more sense to you. The bad news is that it likely won't be any easier to answer. My question for you today is, are you living queerly? As an individual, are you living queerly? As a community, are we living queerly? I have a very distinctive memory of the first time that I think I ever heard that word said aloud. It was my first week of middle school, and things were not going well for little seventh grade Ryan. I had spent most of my elementary school years in the same class of six students that gathered each day in the sanctuary of the same church that my family worshipped in on Sunday mornings. Suddenly, the sheltered life that I had thus far led was crumbling as hundreds, perhaps thousands of students my age, each of them different and different from me, surrounded me. I was not making friends. One of the non-spoken rules of the particular faith tradition that I grew up in was that it was all or nothing. Any extracurricular activity was meant to be done through the church, and any friends made outside of the church were invited to join, or else they were more or less seen as hindrances to the life that we led. So as it were, one day I was walking home from sixth period band class, my instrument in hand, and two long miles walk ahead of me. I had reached the halfway point when one by one, the rest of the classmates walking that day had reached their destination. I was the only one left on the sidewalk. In that moment, a speck appeared. The speck grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And it did so quickly, which led me to realize that it was by no means a speck, but rather, shall we say, a particularly voluminous eighth grader on a bike approaching me at an unsettlingly fast pace. I was stunned. I panicked and I froze in the very spot that I stood, which was probably the stupidest thing one can do in such situations. When the portly bicyclist was but feet away from me, my fight or flight instincts were suddenly activated, albeit annoyingly delayed until this point. So I jumped for my life and I landed in the mossy green gutter of the street which I traveled. Get out of the way, you queer, yelled the eighth grader. 
After a few moments of silent shock, I stood up, and not looking back, I continued walking. My refusal to not look back was not by any means a stretch of the imagination, a virtuous or turn-the-other-cheek exemplar, but rather a refusal to let my assailant see the tears now running from the corners of my eyes. I have a suspicion that that little lump of an eighth grader had about as much of an idea as I did what that word meant at the time. But what we both knew was that that word was as pointed as the end of an arrow. It was meant to bite and incite generally negative feelings. Why is it that a word so euphonious as queer should be so offensive to our culture? Upon deeper examination, we may begin to understand something that is queer as something which is non-binary. And this is actually why I have reclaimed it, and it is indeed how I personally choose to identify. There's something about the sheer ambiguity of this word that I find liberating and resonant. I think it's a good fit for me because if I'm being honest, I've been out for years and I'm still trying to figure things out. I think that defining queer in this manner may make it clear as to why we as a society find it particularly disturbing. We live in a society that in many respects is motivated by our concept of binary. We are so obsessed with putting ourselves into conformative categories, and this worries me. As people of faith, we have to recognize the amount of idolatry that is contained within this behavior. We cannot propose that we are made in the image of God if we continue to simply conform. To be queer is to reject binaries, to fully embrace the person that God has created us to be. To do so is to let blossom the image of the maker which is in us all, who exists within us all, because we are all created in that maker's very image. To simply conform is to embrace a life of worldly binaries, stifling and suffocating the queer within and preventing it from ever sprouting in the first place. This is why the queer offends us, because to be queer is to be set apart, holy even. Because to embrace the queer is to embrace the queer God who lives within us all. Indeed, in my experience of scripture and personal faith, have brought me to a belief in a God who is unabashedly, irrevocably queer. It was the supreme being, the supremely queer Godhead, who of all possibilities endued to a Godhead, inspired the earth into creation. To quote Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood, the queer was in the beginning, and the beginning was queer. In the abyss, there was, no, there was one being who was different enough from the normative nothingness to push through nothingness and create somethingness. In a cosmic act of love, this God being created Ha-Adam, who in an uncorrupted state knew no gender or concept thereof, as we are told in Genesis chapter 2. For 18 verses, Ha-Adam was neither male nor female, but both or maybe somewhere in between. And God said, Ha-Adam was good. There was in this uncorrupted state of Eden no place for binary, only holy. It was the early Celtic converts to Christianity who once referred to the Holy Ghost 
as the wild goose. A wild goose in her great mystery remains untamable. The wild goose goes where she will, stirring up what she may. The wild goose cannot be bound. She filled the lungs of Ha Adam. She hovered over the great water, saying to its beasts, Come out. She is just as keen to manifest herself as a dove as she is a violent fire. She is peace as she is divine chaos, the queer spirit. Perhaps the most visual example of this qualitatively queer God which I propose, can be seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly, beginning with his very incarnation, to quote the hymnist, his name shall be Emmanuel, not God upon a throne, but God with us as close as blood and bone. How queer, then, that the God-being should humble themselves to earth. This is Jesus the child who taught the scribes and the rabbis of the synagogue, Jesus who performed miracles and said, tell no one what you have seen. This is Jesus who, yes, flipped tables, and Jesus who touched the lepers. Jesus of Nazareth could not be deterred by society's expectations of normativity. This is the queer incarnation. I think that the road to Emmaus is one of the most beautiful stories in the entire gospel. If you've been to the Holy Land, you will know that dusk truly is the magic hour in the Middle East. One of the most splendorous sights that I think I ever beheld was the sun setting as I sat on the roof of St. George's Anglican Cathedral in East Jerusalem. It so happened to be during the Festival of Eid that I was there last, and just as the sun hit the horizon, the fireworks began. Between them and the sunset, I have never witnessed a more vibrant palette of color. At dusk, the entire city of Jerusalem seems to take a collective sigh. In the old city, the shouting vendors close up shop. For the first time in hours, a hot meal seems reasonable. So we met Cleopas, who actually, as it turns out, is the brother of Joseph, Mary's spouse, or presumably. He and his pals have hit the road. But no matter how peaceful that sunset would have been, they would have paid it no mind because they were fleeing. They had devoted their entire lives to this teacher, following him all over the land. And it was all for naught. This teacher was a fraud. They had been deceived. There was no hope. He had not redeemed them. And now he was dead, humiliated and murdered in front of his own mother. Were they next? Who was this stranger? Had he been living under a rock? We know that he was Jesus, the great queer. He had just crushed the single most normative binary that the world has ever known, which is death. The apostles were so blinded by their own sinful normativity that they could not see what was happening before their very eyes. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. 
This moment in which these disciples recognize what exactly is going on is known in Greek as an anagnorisis, the recognition of a person and what that person stands for. Friends, I am of the belief that around this table, which we draw our theme for University Chapel, there are more than two chairs to choose from. In fact, I am convinced that there are infinitely many, and the one reserved for us is the most beautiful expression of our divinely queer creator. This is what room at the table is, the corporate confession of a queer God. We cannot presume to even approach the table until we have seen this queer God in ourselves and in our neighbors. But once we do, once we begin to see the queer for what the queer is in this moment of anagnorisis, we find ourselves liberated. But it isn't so easy being green. To be sure, all of this calls us out of our normative comfort zones but to the ultimate end that we will be witnesses to the resurrection. The resurrection of the queer will certainly get us into trouble. To, to paraphrase Bishop Gene Robinson, if it doesn't, maybe it's not the gospel that we believe in. It is my hope that by the great grace of God, we will. So my question for you remains, are you living queerly? Are we, as a community, living queerly? In the name of the one holy and undivided Trinity, amen. Will you pray with me? Benevolent God, open our eyes to move beyond our limited way of understanding our world. Give us the wisdom to see beyond the superficial. Strengthen our hearts to embrace how you have created us, not conforming to definitions of others. Give us courage to be. Amen. As you go out to the world, open your eyes to more than one dimension of being. Try to see God everywhere and in everyone. Acknowledge the divine presence in yourself as you strive to see it in others. Amen.